When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everyone, to the 42nd episode of the Take the Points podcast, part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. I'm your co-host, Tate Seth, joined as always by Arjun Menon. Arjun, how are you today? Doing all right. Um, Coming off a a pretty hectic week of trying to get back from California to Michigan. Um, You know, I, I was trying to fly back on Tuesday morning, so I was supposed to arrive in Ann Arbor on Tuesday night. Uh, thanks to Southwest, which, you know, I don't really blame anyone flying is pretty hectic at this time of year, but flight got delayed until 11, then straight up canceled. And I was forced to stay overnight in the Austin airport in Texas until five in the morning where I then had to take a red eye to St. Louis and then take a connecting flight to Ann Arbor. So a pretty hectic week just to get back to Ann Arbor, but, you know, glad I made it back safely and, you know, excited to, to chop it up for what is now the last week of the regular season. Yeah, it was, it was crazy kind of following along your, your journey. You know, we were both working on the Big Data Bowl together, and that's something that we'll release pretty soon here, uh, maybe around the same time that this podcast is released. And for anyone who doesn't know, the Big Data Bowl is a competition the NFL holds every season where you can compete on either the college track or the public track. And you kind of put together a project or a metric based on tracking data that the NFL gives you. So like we were working on this together and I would get little updates from you where you're like, oh, I'm, I'm delayed in Texas for the next couple hours. I'll work on our big datable project <laughs> since like I'm sitting here. And I felt I felt bad, but I'm, I'm really glad you're back as well. Yeah, no, the, I'm super excited for a big datable thing to come out. Um, you know, you know, it was, it was it was a long time, and yeah, I mean, the whole flying process is it was a journey. So, uh, but again, I, I don't really fault anyone within Southwest. I don't even fault the airline. Like, it's it's pretty hectic this time of year, and uh, you know, I don't, with, especially with COVID, it's kind of hard to get these things managed. So, um, I, you know, obviously, we're not here to really talk about uh, flying airplanes and you know our personal lives. So, I think it's probably best. And it's only right that we start the episode talking about Damar Hamlin. Um, so for our listeners, like we didn't release our Wednesday episode. Like we recorded that, but we didn't re- we didn't release it because of Damar Hamlin's injury, and we just didn't felt it was feel it was right to kind of put out any football content from our side um, in podcast form because we wanted people to kind of you know be able to process what had happened, and we didn't want to kind of overwhelm anyone with any fo- football content football content that they didn't feel like they wanted to listen to so took our Wednesday show off obviously prayers go out to him and his family but um Tay, do you have anything you want to say about the situation mm-hmm. yeah you know first of all Demar Hamlin's health comes first with everything that happened on that Monday night and you know it's a very scary situation to kind of go into it when we were all watching the game I think it did pretty much look like a routine tackle on T. Higgins, but when you saw the replay of DeMar Hamlin kind of bounce up off the ground and then fall back onto the ground and hit his head, that's when you realize that this was like pretty different than any other injury we've seen in the NFL. And 
obviously the aftermath of what happened was that where DeMar Hamlin was down on the field for what felt like a very, very long time. I think it ended up being around 15 minutes of, of actual time, but it was very scary for you know him and his family. But I think the reaction on the players' faces is something that will stick with me for as long as I watch football, seeing the camera pan to Josh Allen and Stefan Diggs and some of the other Bills players that were on the field that they kind of had to huddle around DeMar Hamlin to see what's happening, happening to keep kind of like outside forces from, from interacting with that. But like, it, it just like seeing kind of how they acted in that moment, I think is something that was, was kind of crazy to see in real time, knowing how well, NFL players are at moving on from when players have gotten really badly injured before or even like paralyzed on the field like the game usually continues this one just felt totally different and you know as of we're recording this Thursday evening around 6 p.m eastern time and there's there's been some good news that has come out about him where he has woken up and he was able to communicate through writing and able to move his hands and arms so I'm sure that makes the Bills players feel a lot better but if they do come out on the field against the Patriots this Sunday, I do have to applaud their their bravery and their courage for doing that. Yeah, I mean, you, you said it best. I think you highlighted everything I, I kind of wanted to say. Um, and yeah, health as well. So his health comes first. And I, I agree with you. I was watching that game and just the blank stares. You don't normally see that. Like obviously games usually go on after a really bad concussion or any type of head injury, but this was different. Like when someone has to get CPR and have an AED, um administered to them that's like life or death right and that kind of stuff is is pretty serious you don't see that every day in sports and it kind of just speaks to the violent nature of the sport and i do hope you know for the nfl's sake for the player's sake that their playing ability isn't affected by this that they don't play with they don't play more conservatively like i think overall like obviously we want the sport to be safe uh and we want players to be healthy but there is a, a physical aspect to the sport that players need to have and i think I, I do worry that players might lose that edge for whatever you know for the reasons that you kind of outlined and just seeing what happened to damar but obviously prayers go out to him his family hope the bills are doing well hope t higgins is doing well um and i think you know overall that was a pretty scary side for the nfl and it's it's a situation i think for the most part they managed well um obviously the five minute thing we don't really know what happened there but um yeah i think i think overall just a pretty scary situation that i think everyone handled pretty well so um i think we're let's yeah sorry you want to ask yeah i was just i was just gonna say and like yeah you know damar hamlin where where he is able to make this recovery i think makes a lot of people feel better about the situation but still obviously very very scary for it to happen on a football field and kind of the way that i think the media has handled this has been really impressive so far with the camera immediately cutting to kind of like the ESPN crew. I thought Scott Van Pelt in particular did a tremendous job kind of organizing mm -hmm. everything, making giving us update, updates in real time on ESPN, but also between uh, Mina Kimes and Dominique Foxworth's podcast that they did. I think that was released on, on Tuesday, as well as Robert Mays at the Athletic Show interviewing uh, the, the Buffalo Bills athletic um, beat writer and also Mitchell Schwartz and kind of talking about this has been, has been really good to me to see like, all these different opinions about about this situation since it is mm -hmm. unprecedented 
And I think Twitter, for the most part, besides one Skip Bayless tweet, did a great job of making sure that DeMar Hamlin was okay. We didn't see anyone talk about their fantasy football lineups or their bets like, affecting us. Like everyone everyone yeah. made sure that his health was okay first. And based on everything that happened with his toy drive and the different GoFundMes that are relating to this, it kind of made me feel a little bit better about humanity as a whole after after the whole situation <laughs> happened. Yeah, being in college, you kind of like lose faith in humanity after seeing some of the things that people do. So yeah. it, was, it was good to see the the general population uh, kind of rally around Demar and, and the rest of the Bills and his family. So um, again, you know, prayers go out to him. I think we should move on to talking about some of the games. So we will preview three games that have some playoff impl- implications. So um, I think let's start off with Titans Jags, which a lot of people want it to be the Sunday night game because it, you know, it's kind of independent of any other game. There is no really other result that could influence this game outside of, you know, the Jags potentially playing for the wild card. But regardless, Jags are playing to win. You need that home home field advantage. So, um, you know, just talking about the Jags, I think it's best that we look at this game through the lens of the rematch so uh and what i mean by that is like looking at what happened in week 14 when they played so last time they played that was trevor lawrence's best game of the season he averaged 0.43 ep per play 91.3 pff passing grade three big time throws and his favorite target that game evan ingram who generated a total of 12 expected points added had 11 catches for 162 yards and two touchdowns that was his best game of his career but the thing I found interesting about this game, Tage, was the Titans actually had a better success rate than the Jags in this game. Now, I think, you know, part of that could be a little bit of garbage time influenced in there. But really, the the Titans lost this game in the high leverage situations. They had uh, two lot, they had three lost fumbles and an interception. And two of those came in Jags territory. And two of them came like within like the 30 of, the, of their own 30. So I think the Titans kind of like just threw that game away. From with turnovers, and now you don't even have Ryan Tannehill coming into this game. Um, I am pretty concerned about the Titans' ability to score any points, really, with Joshua Dobbs, regardless of how you know not that great the Jags' defense is. Uh, I think the Jags are the far better team in this game, and they kind of proved that when they played in Week 14 in Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Yes, no, I I agree with that. I I think that the Titans will be able to move the ball on, on this Jaguars defense, especially on, on the ground to, to an extent. I don't think this Jaguars defense is particularly good, although they've played better the past couple of weeks. But when you have a quarterback advantage like the Jaguars do in this game, where Trevor Lawrence is going up against Joshua Dobbs, I think that's why you have to go with Jacksonville in this game to win. But there are paths for Tennessee to win this game. Uh, you know, For example, I think that their tight end, um, Okwanu, has done a, a great Okonkwo. job. He, or, sorry, Okonkwo, not Okwanu, <laughs> um, has, has done a great job. You know, he, he leads the league right now in yards per out run with, with a minimum of 100 snaps with 2.5 yards per out run more than Travis Kelsey's 2.3. So, like, if, if he, he has done well in a small sample size. So, you know, if you lean into kind of like what he has there, there's a path to win with there. And then you have the classic Rabel defensive performance where – even though his defense is injured, we could see a pretty innovative game plan. The, the Titans have had two weeks to prepare for this game because they, mm-hmm. they gave up in that, that Dallas game last week. And we could see a game plan that really gets after some of the things that the Jaguars offense still struggles with, which is not having a true X receiver. 
So if you spread out kind of your secondary and make all of them individually beat you in a single or, or double coverage, I think that could mm-hmm. really be how you get there. Or taking advantage of the the Jags offensive line and kind of bringing pressure from both sides, because we know that Trevor Lawrence is so good from a keeping his pressure to sack rate low standpoint. But when there's pressure coming from both sides, I think we've seen him struggle with forcing the balls into tight windows and maybe the Titans could get interceptions off of that. Yeah, you know, that's a great point. I think Trevor Lawrence is good for, one or two bad decisions a game that I think the Titans have to take advantage of. But I think there are still just a couple data points that I, I like that just paints the, that the Jags are going to be able to take advantage of the Titans in this game. So we've highlighted this at least like three or four times on this podcast. Right now, through week 17, the Titans have the fourth worst defense against play action per EPA per drop back allowed. The Jaguars have the sixth best off sixth best offense running play action uh, per EPA per play. So again, the the Titans linebackers, um, uh, what's it, David Long and Dylan Cole, uh, Zach Cunningham, Joe Schober, whoever's playing out there at linebacker sells out to stop the run. They have one of the lowest average depth of target. I think David Long actually has the lowest average depth of target among all linebackers in the NFL this year. But that also leaves them susceptible to the play action game. And one of the things that I've always been a fan of um, Doug Peterson is he exploits other teams' weaknesses better than almost any coach in the NFL. And I think, you know, with how, you know, how well he does that, I think we see a heavy dose of play action, a lot of getting Trevor Lawrence outside the pocket to kind of mitigate the interior pressure from Jeffrey Simmons um, and some of the other Titans pass rushers and a lot. I think the heavy dose of play action will hurt the Titans, who, again, I think have sold out to stop the run in almost every game this year. And that kind of shows up in the data with David Long having a 1.1 average depth of tackle, but also being, you know, one of the not not a great coverage linebacker by, I guess, like most metrics. Mm -hmm. Yes. No, that's a great point about Doug Peterson and kind of the way that he's able to evolve his game plans each week as the the Jaguars go into these games and we saw this with two weeks ago against the the Cowboys where there's the Jaguars really big win for the Jaguars and they were able to pass all over the Cowboys third string cornerbacks and it yeah. was a big Trevor Lawrence for game for them and then last week against Houston Houston's run defense is is really really bad but they do have some pieces in the secondary like Jalen Petrie and so it became a really big Travis Etienne game. And Trevor mm-hmm. Lawrence only threw for 150 yards because Etienne was was doing the bulk of the carrying and he knew his explosive runs could take advantage of what Houston had to offer. So when it comes to this game, like you mentioned, I, I do see Peterson leaning into a lot of play action concepts over the middle of the field where David Long and the linebackers would have vacated that spot. And David Long is a, is a really good player, I think. You know, his main weakness is biting on play action from a run defense standpoint. He's one of the best run defenders yeah. in the entire league. He's he plays like a, our, our friend uh, Michael Vanit described him as Tasmanian devil, where he can kind of <laughs> get anywhere on the field at any time when there's a ball carrier. But that does leave him susceptible to biting on on play action a little too much. And that's why his coverage ability lacks a little bit. So. That's that's what opens up a big Evan Ingram game part two mm-hmm. against the Titans is those play action plays that will leave the middle of the field open. Yeah, no, you said it best. And um, uh, you know, some also some things about the Titans. Christian Fulton questionable. Amani Hooker questionable. The big one, Traylon Burks also questionable with um, Hooker and 
Burks getting downgraded from Wednesday to Thursday. So obviously that's not a good look with Burks kind of being the, he's kind of classified as the wide receiver too, but he's a better receiver than Robert Woods is at right now. And Amani Hooker is, you know, a pretty good safety as well. Um, I think getting Christian Fulton back would be a huge help. I would say with Roger McCreary, that gives the Titans a formidable outside corner duo. But um, again, if he's out, I, I, even if he's playing, I still think the Titans will struggle to stop the Jags through the air. And if he's out, I think Doug Peterson will have a game plan that is specifically designed to attack uh, the the Titans' backup corner. So I, I am pretty worried for the Titans in this game. Um, you know, throughout the entire offseason, I was kind of fading the Titans, kind of backing the Jags a little bit. Me and our friend Judah have, have a lot of futures riding on this game that if Jags win the AFC South and Titans miss the playoffs, I think we we make a, a good number of units after Saturday. But um, I'm pretty I'm pretty excited for this game, and I, I am glad it's on primetime and we get to see Trevor Lawrence, hopefully with another, another masterclass. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I'm hoping for you and Judah to do well in that aspect. And from like a tight end standpoint, like we, we I think we both were kind of low on them coming into the season. We like the Colts and the Jaguars better in the division because of what they had to offer. But the Titans coaching staff showed that they can grind out these wins early in the season. At this point, though, they have 50.1% of their current cap on uh, IR. So that's a hundred four yeah. million dollars and thirty three players that's reserved on IR. So there's only so much coaching can do at this point. Like the the Arizona Cardinals are second with thirty eight percent of their their cap on IR. So when when you can see that big of a difference between the Titans at fifty percent and the second mm-hmm. most IR cap room at thirty eight percent, you can see like how badly the Titans have been injured. And this has kind of been two weeks in a two years in a row where they've been kind of ravaged by injuries. So. We, we know that's pretty unstable, you know, over a, a long sample size, a long period of time. So hopefully the Titans can be one of the healthier teams next year because I'd like to see how, how that kind of works out once they get some more talent in there, especially on the offensive side of the ball. Um, yeah, I think uh, I need to pull it up. But um, when I did, I don't know if you remember, this was like one of my earliest articles. It was about adjusted games lost for the MFAN site. Mm-hmm. And... Um, one of the things I looked at was, you know, just like team uh, adjusted games lost. And weirdly enough, like the number of injuries team suffer stayed kind of stable. And mm-hmm. the Titans were one of the healthiest teams from 2010 to 2020. Um, their lowest ranking in AGL was 22nd. So I, you know, it is, it is pretty interesting that the Titans, you know, have kind of had back-to-back years of injury ravaged seasons after I put out that article. So maybe I, maybe I'm just a jinx. Uh, because I, I've talked about the Rams injury luck all off season, and this year they're the mo- one of the most injured teams in the mm-hmm. NFL. So um, maybe I got to lay off that. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think we should we should move over to Patriots Bills. Um, I you know obviously this isn't as highly anticipated, but there are like massive playoff implications. Obviously, the Patriots need to win, and they're in. If they lose, they need some help from the Jets to be able to make it. But um, do you have any, you know, big takeaways going into this game? Mm-hmm. Or in yeah. I if, yeah, if it was a normal game, I think that the bills would kind of do what they want with the Patriots defense. You know, it's, it's hard to speculate exactly how the bills are going to feel coming into this game, but just looking at these past matchups between this team, these two teams and in the past two seasons, if you throw out that really windy Monday night matchup between the bills and the Patriots, where no one was able to do anything on offense, the Bills' offense has 
dominated this Patriots defense. And these Patriots defenses have been good and dominated a lot of other teams. But I think the Bills offense just matches up so perfectly against the Patriots defense. And that's why the, the Bills didn't have to punt in their playoff game last year. Uh, or sorry, even going back to their, their week 16 matchup, the the uh, after that Monday night game, they, the Bills didn't have to punt in that game, didn't have mm-hmm. to punt in the, the playoff matchup. And then their, their first game, uh, on Thursday night this year, they didn't even punt until the third quarter uh, when when the game was kind of out of hand. So like the the Bills offense has been able to drive up and down the field and convert field goals and touchdowns in every drive, and that's because the Patriots play the most man coverage in the league. So the corners backs are going to be turned often, allowing Josh Allen to scramble and get rushing yards on his design rushes. And then the Patriots don't really have the high end corner that can cover Stefan Diggs and Stefan Diggs is a top five receiver in the league right now. And I don't mm-hmm. see how the Patriots defense are going to be able to cover him in this game. The Patriots defense has done really good against receiving groups that have a bunch of wide receiver twos this year, because that's how they're kind of built to have a bunch of cornerback twos, but they don't have a, a good corner that can really shut down Diggs. Yeah, no, I agree. Last The last couple of years, they've had J.C. Jackson, Stephon Gilmore. I still think Diggs kind of got the better Jackson most of the times they play. Most corners kind of lose their matchups to to Stephon Diggs. But, I, you know, in the last game, I was I, I thought Josh Allen's legs would, would have been a a bigger like part of the game. But it, it was like it really wasn't. He the the Bills actually leaned more on James Cook and Devin Singletary, both of whom combined for 27 touches for um, 115 yards. So, you know, the I, I think the Bills, for the most part, are trying to keep Josh Allen healthy until the playoffs, just because, you know, you don't want it, you don't want him taking those unnecessary hits, those unnecessary risks to injury. And so um, I think the the Bills, and we, we kind of talked about this in our review, on our review show that, you know, obviously didn't go up, but the Bills run game has been steadily better since week mm-hmm. nine which is basically the second half of the season they actually ranked ninth in epa per rush um kind of show and and seventh in rushing success success rate so they've been more into james cook who's more of an, an explosive runner than devin singletary but also you know josh the fact that josh allen can kind of rip a 30 yard run whenever he wants obviously mm-hmm. helps any offensive coordinator so i think the bills balance will be super crucial in this game where belichick might sell out to stop the and we kind of saw in the last game to be honest when it comes to kind of like how the game plan for this bill's offense mm-hmm. yeah no I'm, I'm glad you you brought up the the bills run game James Cook on on 81 rushes this year has had a 1.85 rushing yards over expected. He's had 5.8 <laughs> yards per carry when expected to get 3.9. Uh, he had the highest explosive run rate coming out of college. And I've written about how explosive run rate from college to pro is the best trait to look for. And Devil Singletary has been good. He's gotten a 0.3 rushing yards over expected, which is above average. But I do think that James Cook could do really good in this game. But this Patriots defense is playing well right now between getting Christian Barmore back last game from injury really helped them in both aspects of the game. And then their linebackers have really come together. I think Juwan Bentley has been phenomenal 
for them. Mm-hmm. And then it really pains me to say this, but Jelani Tavai is a starting <laughs> caliber, caliber linebacker in the, the Patriots scheme. It's crazy how he's double, basically doubled his PFF grade going from the Lions to the Patriots where he was in the 30s with the Lions and this year he's in the 70s with, with the Patriots. It's another Belichick masterclass in that aspect. But there, there are aspects of the Patriots defense that can stop the run, but the Bills can just beat you in so many ways on offense. It's going to be tough for them for them to do that. When, when looking at the other side of the ball, this is a, a Bills secondary that's really starting to get banged up with, with a ton more injuries. And yeah. they, they lost a lot of lot of players on defense early in the season. And it's kind of happening again here. And this Patriots offense is their the receivers are constructed where they're they're all okay, like like we talked about, but none of them are true X receivers. And if they got that X receiver, I think like in the draft this year or in free agency or through a trade, I think this receiver group could actually be pretty good. But Again, Mac Jones is just not working in this Matt Patricia scheme right now. So I don't know how exactly the Patriots are, are going to move the ball. But there are going to be some plays where because of busted coverages, I think the Patriots will be able to move down the field. Just won't happen that often. Yeah, that, that's a great point. And, you know, one of the things about the um, the Patriots offense is they, they like to run a lot of screens, right? So they run screens about... 15.8% of the time, but they have like a 36% success rate, which is below the league average when doing so. And, you know, the Bills, the thing with the Bills defense is they're actually really bad versus screens. So, you know, I know Matt Patricia and Mac Jones doesn't really seem like they're on the same page. I do think screens could be a way for the Patriots to get things going just based on the Bills' like lack of success on defense against screens. But, um, you know, mm-hmm. I still think Matt Milano and Tremaine Edmonds are one of the better teams or better linebacker duos in the league. And, and you know, going back to your point about the Bills' coverage unit, again, I, I hate just using, like, splits, but I, I do, I, I'm going to ask you a question after. But since week nine, the Bills have actually had the 24th best pass defense uh, per EPA per dropback allowed. And I think that's kind of significant, right? Like, we've seen Tredavis White come back, and yet the Bills are still – not this great of a, a coverage unit with him back in the fold. And so I do think like losing Jamar Hamlin, like he was probably like an above like above replacement level safety. Like, like I obviously like don't want to talk about him too much, but he was replacing Micah Hyde, right? So he is, he was like a backup before Micah Hyde got injured. And so I don't think the drop off with him will be too big, but Toronto, Teron Johnson, who was also hurt in that Bengals game, I think he's the bigger loss because he is one of the better um, slot corners that you'll see in the NFL. And again, Tredavis White hasn't looked up, look hasn't looked back to form yet. The first play of the game, he has a DPI against Jamar Chase, right? Mm-hmm. And so I, I do worry about the Bills' pass defense. I did want to ask you something. So I think you kind of put this question on on Twitter, just like this. It, it's the time of the year where we can say since week blank to make our team look more favorable. I did that with my Los Angeles Chargers in the in their past <laughs> defense. You've done it with your Detroit Lions and mm-hmm. their offense. But I think this year more than anything, those splits kind of matter more in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And I say that because the early part of the year, we saw passing offenses were down. We saw scoring mm-hmm. was down. It seems like we've had that kind of correction back to the average or at least like some regression back to at least the mean of the last like 15, 16 years, right? So do you think like these type of splits, at least in a a, a nine game sample size versus like a, a four or five game, obviously those smaller ones are going to have more volatility, but the larger nine, 10 game sample sizes using like a half of a season, do you think those actually hold some merit and show more 
and, and show more about a team uh, that than like in years prior, just because of the kind of corrections we've had on both sides of the ball. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this this is a great question, and I wasn't subtweeting anyone. I was actually basically just subtweeting <laughs> myself, like you mentioned. Like I've used that for the Lions multiple times. That the Lions of offense has come come alive here in the second half of the season. But when when you like, there is actually some noise to looking at half season splits. It's just not as predictive as as full season sample sizes so that's why i still like to use full season but you're right when when you look at this year specifically there have been more quarterbacks that have started for teams this year than any season since the nfl started tracking it and i think 1983 i think field dh tweeted this the other day and that's why you have to use these these season splits we've had so many different quarterbacks start for so many different teams this year whether it's been injuries or players having to take a week off or different scenarios like that where you have to look at these specific game sample sizes and kind of kind of adjust for for everything that you see. Like the the 49ers defense, for example, had a prime opportunity to to kind of move up the EPA leaderboard against Jarrett Stidham, you know, a, a, a former fourth round pick starting in his first game in a new offense, and they weren't able to take advantage of it. And so like you have to you have to kind of adjust your your information for that more than what the 49ers did in week two against Geno Smith, who was playing at a totally different level at the time. So I do like how you you brought up that point where it is a lot different this season because of all the different quarterbacks that have started, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think um, I, so those type of splits like I, in years past, I probably would have still paid them some attention. But I think in this year, just because of the kind of corrections we've seen on both sides of the ball and, and pa- passing offenses being down, I think it is worthwhile to kind of look at those splits. And especially with injuries being up, I think, you know, getting players back, it, it matters in, in some sense. Um, but moving on, talking about our last game before we head, our, head over to our awards, uh, Packers-Lions. This is a this is a massive game. We'll be watching this one together. I'm I'm pretty excited for it. Uh, I'm let you kick us, kick us off with any observation or anything you wanted to say about this game. <laughs> um, before I let my emotions get get in the way here, just from from a pure data perspective, I do have to think that the Packers have the advantage in this game, especially with their offense against Lions defense. But on both sides of the ball, I think that they have an advantage here and. That's because this Packers team is the team that we were kind of promised at the beginning of the season, and, and they're playing at that level right now. We we talked about this on the review show that, that ended up getting released, but a problem with the Packers, especially when they got this late in the season, was Aaron Rodgers would start to have a silo on Devontae Adams and not really focus on anyone else. But now yeah. we're seeing him spread the ball to Alan Lazard, Christian Watson, Romeo Dobbs, and he now you can't take away Aaron Rodgers' favorite target because he doesn't really have a favorite target this year. He's he's kind of targeting everyone. And like that's why this I don't think this Lions secondary, where we've seen Aaron Glenn want to double Tyreek Hill, he's doubled Justin Jefferson. There's no one to double on this Packers team. And that's why I think the Lions defense could could really get exposed in this game because they just don't have the players in the secondary to cover some of the the throws that Aaron Rodgers are going to make in this game. And then on top of that, 
the Lions are allowing the most scramble yards in the league to opposing quarterbacks. And I think when we get into these third and six, third and fives, Aaron Rodgers had a scramble for a touchdown last week. Mm-hmm. And I think he's going to do that a couple times in this game as well. So I just, I just don't see much of a path for the Lions defense stopping the Packers offense in this game. I think that the chance that they have is you have another James Houston and Aiden Hutchinson multi sack game, but that's really hard to replicate when the pressures aren't there as often as we expect pressures to be there for other players that are getting a lot of sacks like Nick Bosa and Micah Parsons. Yeah. Well, I think you highlighted it best. And I, I did want to like kind of review the game from week nine. It was, it was a pretty boring game, 15 to nine. Um, the, so the thing with that game was the Packers just lost the game inside the red zone. So the Packers e paper play outside the red zone was a 0.175. Inside the red zone on 14 plays, they averaged a negative 1.43 EPA per play, which means they basically lost 14 points or expected points inside of the red zone alone. And you can't, you just can't do that. Like you can't do that, especially on the road when you're not playing well, you just, you have to be able to at least get some points there. And the Packers failed pretty much all game. I don't think we'll get that this game. Um, you know, those kind of things are one in, you know, one in a season. And Aaron Rodgers is too good of a quarterback to kind of have that have that performance again. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, his last four games have all had an EPA per play above zero point one six. You know, that doesn't necessarily mean he's playing well. It means the production is going back up, and um, he's at least producing at a tier two or tier three quarterback level. Like these are not the Aaron Rodgers games of old. They just need Aaron Rodgers to be able to win on third down and not throw the game away with his interceptions, which I think is interesting because this is the year he's had the most interceptions since like 2000. I forget the year, but he he's been throwing more interceptions than, you know, than in previous seasons. But this season with how much better the defense has been playing in the second half of the year um, with their run game, like steadily increasing. Again, I'm going to reference a, since week nine stat but since week nine their offense has actually had um a top six rushing unit per epa per play uh and uh, top 10 in in rushing success rate so they they have been able to find some balance on offense being able to run the ball and like you said i think aaron Rodgers' connection with his receivers has also increased throughout the year which is typically what we see from quarterbacks with young receivers right so um Mm -hmm. Do you have it like are, what about the what about your offense though? Like I think your offense has been playing pretty well and the Packers defense has been playing pretty well. Do you think like which unit do you think comes out on top here? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean I yeah, like we said, I, I think the Packers offense is a pretty big advantage over the Lions defense. I think the the Lions offense has a slight advantage over the Lions defense, and that it has to be a big DeAndre Swift game. If so, Jamal Williams as cool as he is as a, as a culture guy and as, as many touchdowns as he scored this year for all the fantasy football people out there. He's not a good rusher at this point in his career, but DeAndre Swift is, if you give him a hole to hit, he's DeAndre Swift is not good when he has to choose uh, between multiple holes or, or kind of gaps to shoot through. But if he's able to flow with the run game, I think that this could be a very big DeAndre Swift game. And the data kind of backs this up. Uh, Amina Kimes put this out. Uh, yesterday, and she kind of said that Green Bay's run defense against you know zone run games, they're they're fourth in EPA per play against, but against versus power and counter, they're thirtieth. So if you're opening up a single hole for DeAndre Swift to hit, I think that he could he could take advantage of Green Bay's pretty poor run defense in this game. 
from a from a passing game perspective, we saw Jair Alexander have the best game of his entire season last week, and mm-hmm. we can we can kind of see maybe something similar against Amon Ross St. Brown. I think St. Brown is a very, very good receiver, but he's not Justin Jefferson level. So if Green Bay approaches it with a similar game plan where it's a lot of bracketing and, and double coverage against St. Brown, I think it has to become a big DJ Chart game, a big Brock Wright game. So there are pieces there, but when you're dealing with golf on the road, outdoors, as well as he's played in, in other situations, we've seen him not play well in these types of games. So that's what worries me from from that perspective. But the Lions do have the weapons to keep up with the Packers offense. It's just a matter of if they're able to put it all together. Yeah. I think you I think you said it best. Um I also think the the Lions play action game will be super crucial in this in this game versus the Packers. So Jared Goff this year has actually been the third best passer per EPA per play, running play action. The Packers defense is seventh worst versus play action. Um, you know, we've kind of talked about Quay Walker being a pretty good coverage linebacker, uh, not so great in run defense because of his athleticism, but he's kind of light on his feet. Um, I do think he's, you know, as a rookie, you can kind of pick on him in play action. If he bites on play action, you can kind of have that ability to, to target him. Um, and same thing with, I think, some of their other uh, other guys like Eric Stokes, uh, Chris Barnes, if he ever sees the field, but it's mostly Quay Walker and De- uh, Devondre Campbell over the middle of the field. And I do think they are exploitable in the play action game. And that kind of bears out in the data. Um, and I think Ben Johnson versus Joe Barry will be a very, very like interesting matchup. Uh, Joe Barry, I think most Packers fans wanted him out of green Bay. It seemed like throughout the early part of the season, green Bay's defense, which is, kind of like built to stop explosive plays was doing anything but that. And I think Ben Johnson, one of the things I was looking at today is uh, how often offenses face perfectly covered plays. The Lions have actually faced the second lowest rate of perfectly covered plays of any offense in the league. But the interesting part is the Packers defense has the fourth highest rate of perfectly covered plays of any defense in the league. So it's one of those, you know, Dave Goliath meets Goliath type matchups. (laughs) But I I tend to side with elite offenses in this matchup. And, you know, I think Ben Johnson is is, could have a great game play uh calling the plays but i i do want to hear your take about jared goff in this game because obviously it's it's not a one o'clock game he's outdoors you know do you do you have any worry about him from that perspective i know those kind of splits are kind of noisy but i think there is some signal in you know especially coming from this year mm-hmm. yeah and no, I'm, I'm really glad you brought up the the perfectly covered plays and ben johnson's been phenomenal this year our friend dave safaro sent us a video about jared goff today kind of like a highlight video of his season that was more of a pump up for this game. And I kind of joked that it was actually a Ben Johnson highlight video because every touchdown that Jared Goff has thrown this year has been relatively easy. There hasn't been tight window touchdown throws or like often where you're throwing it deep down the field to a receiver that just has a step of separation. Like the deepest touchdown that Lions have had this year, the Jameson Williams touchdown, he was running wide open down the field. Or you have the Brock Wright touchdown where Ben Johnson ran leak and he ended up running 450 yards for the touchdown. So when it comes to golf specifically, I think it it goes back to what you said. If there are open receivers, he's going to hit him. He's going to hit them in this game. But if he has to create on his own, I think Green Bay's secondary could take advantage of a couple mistakes from Goff. He hasn't thrown an interception in uh, a long time here, and that's due for some regression to the mean eventually. So we could see some turnover-worthy plays that might turn into interceptions for him. But mm-hmm. overall, I think you should feel 
cautiously bullish about the Lions passing offense as a whole because of the play calling, because of the weapons. It's just Goff having to create in the cold uh, at night, you know, not not at one o'clock outdoors, I think is a little worrisome. Yeah, I I, I agree there. And I think, uh, again, it's probably going to have to be Ben Johnson creating the open receivers for Jared Goff. And who knows, like this could be Ben Johnson's last game as the Lions offensive coordinator, as sad as that sounds. Um, but I'll ask you this, like from a fan perspective, like how, like how much are you going to care about this game if the Seahawks win, which basically eliminates you as, you know, as the Lions? My hot take that I won't put on Twitter, but I'll say on this pod is that the Lions shouldn't try to win if the Seahawks end up winning. Uh, they, they should go for, for the draft pick. Um, and you know, it would move them if, if they do end up winning this game and not making the playoffs anyways. They would have the the 18th pick in the draft at, at nine and eight there. But if they if they lose this game, depending on how Sunday shakes up, they would have the 12th, 13th pick in the draft. So going up four or five spots is pretty pretty significant. Mm-hmm. We saw the Eagles do this on Sunday Night Football against the Commanders a couple of years ago. The game that <laughs> some people say got Doug Peterson fired, but it was worth it for them. They ended up getting Devonte Smith. So like I don't I don't see much in trying to keep the Packers out of out of the playoffs, considering that they'll tr- travel to San Francisco and probably lose anyways, and Lions fans will get enjoyment out of that. But I might just be totally off here, and maybe keeping the Packers out of the playoffs is like something that's worth four or five spots of draft position. It's not only that. It's not only that the um, that the Eagles got Devontae Smith. They got an extra first rounder, which turned out to be the Saints' first rounder this year, which could mm-hmm. end up being a top another top top twelve pick, right? So, um, yeah. the thing with Lions, like. Obviously, the the four or five pick thing is huge, but he could also trade back from twelve to eighteen and pick up extra picks, right? Mm-hmm. So I I agree. Like I think obviously it, it feels good in a one day sample to say, oh, we beat the Packers, we kept them out of the playoffs. But in the long run, you want you want the draft pick, right? So yeah, um, that obviously matters matters a bit more. So yeah, those are some really good discussions. I think about kind of the three games with playoff implications. Um, we can transition now to our award section where we'll be picking like which players we kind of think deserve each like major award. So, Tage, why don't you kick us off with your MVP? Yeah, I think MVP has become an easy one because of the Jalen Hurts injury. And, you know, I have to go with Patrick Mahomes, leads the league in total EPA, did it without Tyreek Hill. Uh, just an amazing season from him. I didn't, he only had, I think, like one bad game the entire season, which is crazy for an NFL quarterback. So Mahomes has to be the MVP, I think. Yeah, totally agree. I, I have him, I have him as my MVP as well. Right now, he's uh, minus 850 on FanDuel to win MVP. So he's pretty much all but wrapped it up. I don't know what Joe Burrow is going to be able to do to kind of overtake him or even Jalen Hurts. But yeah, I think Mahomes definitely deserves it. Um, going over to Offensive Player of the Year, I'm going to go with Justin Jefferson. I've been on this train since you kind of gave out that pick, uh, 25 to 1. We're still holding it. I hope everyone didn't rip it up. But, you know, right now, leading the league in receiving yards, despite playing with Kirk Cousins um, as his quarterback, uh, he is third in yards per route run at 2.64. He And I think just overall, he's only had really one, two bad games, but both of them have been where defenses have literally sp- – spent their entire game plan to bracket or help him uh, in the Lions game 
and in the Packers game where, uh, you know, both Joe Barry and Aaron Glenn doubled bracketed him on a, over 40% of their offensive passing plays. So I think he's the best receiver in the game. I don't think any receiver has the kind of impact he has, but I think you might disagree with me a little bit there. <laughs> I Yeah. So I, I, I totally understand what you're saying uh, from, from a Justin Jefferson standpoint. I think that the only receiver that does have more impact on the game than him is Tyree Kill because when Tyree Kill is on the field, you can't play man coverage. So he completely takes out multiple coverages from a defensive perspective. And then on top of that, I'm, I'm, you know, always going to be a yards per route run merchant. Uh, I think it's the best simple stat that we have to use in football. Tyreek Hill has 3.5 yards per route run this year. And Justin Jefferson has 2.9 yards per route run. And Tyreek Hill was doing it with worse quarterbacks throughout the entire season. So like, that's what it does it for me. I know Hill had Waddle to kind of take away some of the attention from him, but I think Hill does deserve offensive player of the year, even if Jefferson ends up winning it. Yeah, no, I, I could totally understand the point to be made there. Um, going over to Defensive Player of the Year, who is who do you think should win that award? I think it has to be Nick Bosa. What, what Bosa has been able to do this year from an impact perspective and the amount of leading the league in total pressures is just something that's been very impressive for, for me. And I think what he allows D'Amico Ryans to do in that defense – sending a four-man rush most of the time and not having to blitz because he knows Bosa will get home more often than not makes him the most impactful defensive player. I agree. And uh, 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 real quick, I actually think we should do an honorable mention for each award or like our second place. So for MVP, I would go with on, like second place would be Jalen Hurts for me. I agree. Yeah. Okay. And then offensive player of the year, I'd say Tyree Kills my number two. Yeah. I saw I'd have Jefferson there. Yeah. Okay. So I agree with you on Nick Bosa leads the league in total pressures. Um, for me, I'm going to go with an interesting one. I'm actually going to go with Max Crosby as my second place runner up. So I don't think people realize like this guy might be the best run defender in the NFL. 55 run stops as an edge player is absolutely absurd. He ranks uh, 10th in total run stops among all players. He's the only edge rusher to even be within like the top uh, 30 which is just super impressive he's really the only reason why the the Raiders like defense still has any like merit and I think he's been tremendous for that Raiders defense I don't know why I'm talking so much about an honorable mention but I feel like he just doesn't get enough love as a as, as an addresser when we talk about like the top 10 top top five no, I'm I'm glad you brought him up. I think he does deserve a lot of recognition and he just doesn't get talked about that much because he's on such a bad defense. Uh if I had to pick an honorable mention, I think Micah Parsons is is like a, a good option there. But like Quinn Williams, I also just wanna I would put as like my official honorable yeah, mention. Oh, yeah. I think he should get some votes <laughs> in that aspect. He was the the you know, one of the most impactful defensive players in the entire league this year allowed the Jets to do so many different coverage things when they realized that Quentin Williams was really really good they started playing a lot more too high coverages where they left the middle of the field open because they knew he could handle it and like that's mm -hmm. what the impact is to me yeah that's great um going over to uh offensive rookie of the year who do you have as your as your guy I have Garrett Wilson as my offensive rookie of the year. I thought he did a great job getting over all the quarterback situations this year, and he's good at both getting open and yards after the catch, which is really impressive to me. Yeah, so I, I would have him as my honorable mention, um, but I'm going to go with Chris Olave, which I, I don't think people are kind of like talking about him enough. Uh, a lot of people just 
you know, kind of talk about Garrett Wilson, Drake London, George Pickens. I think Olave has kind of had the best season of the rookie receivers. Uh, he does trail Garrett Wilson in total yards, but Chris Olave has also missed two games. So technically he has a higher yards per game, higher yards per reception. Um, and then in terms of yards per outrun, he also he's also uh, leading Chris Olave. He's only second to his teammate Rashid, Rashid Shahid. And he also ranks higher in ESPN's track or ESPN's receiver tracking metric, uh, higher in open score than Garrett Wilson. So it, it's pretty cool to see the Ohio State teammates back to back in in our ranking. Or I don't know where he ranks for you, but in terms of like total yardage and stuff among receivers, I think we can agree that Olave and Wilson have been the far away one and two guys this year. Yeah, yeah, Olave's honorable mention for me. Phenomenal season from him. Okay, um, we'll wrap up quickly, but going on to defense rookie of the year, um, I went with Sauce Gardner. I don't really think this this is like much of a debate. Mm-hmm. Um, in me and Judah's uh, coverage, uh, successful coverage over expected metric, he's top five as a rookie. He has the lowest EPA per target of any corner in the league. He's just, I just don't think there's any flaws to his game, and he's really been a shutdown corner for Robert Salah. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, I, I, I think you could maybe argue Woolen or... Uh, Aiden Hutchinson, but no, it has to be Sas Gardner. Woolen would be my honorable mention. Yeah, same, same. Okay, uh, to wrap it up with Coach of the Year, um, who do you have as as your guy? I I, I went with Brian Dable here. Uh, I think what Dable has done, just turning out this roster, Daniel Jones is not a great quarterback, but he has him ranked pretty highly in efficiency metrics because he keeps his usage low. You can just see Jones has gotten better this year from a turnover standpoint. He used Saquon really effectively at the beginning of the season. The Giants have no wide receivers, but still a competent offense. And then on the defensive side of the ball, the hire that they made with Wink Martindale leaning into the variance was super impressive. So Dable's got to be my pick. Yeah, he he would be my honorable mention. Um, I'm going to go with Nick Sirianni. So since from 2021 to 2022, the Eagles offense has had a 0.052 EPA per play improvement. And among all coaches, I think he has the highest uh, win percentage deviation from their preseason win total. So the Eagles are only projected to win 9.5 games. Uh, right now, their win percentage is 21.8% higher than any uh, than their preseason win total, which is the highest of any coach in the league. So I think he's done a great job there. He's won a lot of the margin, uh, won a lot of games in the margins mm-hmm. via fourth down decisions, challenges, timeouts, all of that good stuff. Um, and But yeah, Dable would be my second choice because his offense has taken a big step forward, having a 1.74 EPA per play improvement since last season. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. so that would be my honorable mention there as well. Um, and then, yeah, we can, we also threw in a game of the year for, for just like an, an extra award, which I think should actually be voted on, but we can, <laughs> we can do it on their own. So let's hear your, your game of the year here as their last award. Yeah. So I went with Jaguars Cowboys. Um, you know, this game obviously happened a couple of weeks ago, but I think this was just the most fun game I've watched. It was a lot of great quarterbacking from Trevor Lawrence and, and Dak Prescott and, you know, obviously winning a game in overtime with a pick six is kind of like a exciting, not not the most fun way to end, but it was an exciting way to end. Just like kind of seeing the Jaguars reactions because that kind of boosted their chances to help them get into the playoffs, especially since they came into this game as four point underdogs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a phenomenal game. Uh, I went with another game that happened during the one o'clock slate Vikings bills, uh, the Justin Jefferson one handed catch best catch at all all I've seen in my lifetime so far and I I kind of hope it it stays like that for a couple of years because I I want to rewatch that was amazing but the the game as a whole was 
was awesome. And usually we get like a primetime game of, of kind of that level. This year was a little weird. We we didn't end up getting that, even though last year's primetime games were phenomenal. This year's weren't weren't as good. So that's that's why I think we both ended up with one o'clock Eastern time games here. But you're great games to watch and like definitely games that I'll I'll watch in May and June when I'm really missing football and I I open up YouTube <laughs> to, to get over that, that, uh, withdrawal there. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. Um, okay. So that, that's gonna, that's gonna wrap it up for our episode today. Um, hope everyone enjoyed some of our discussions about the games and our award kind of like predictions and, or like who we would give the awards to again, prayers out to DeMar Hamlin and his family. Hope he's doing all right in Cincinnati. And, um, I hope the bills and Bengals players are kind of able to overcome that with the playoffs right around the corner. Again, super excited for the playoffs. This is shaping up to be a pretty, pretty interesting slate of games on both, on both conferences. But, um, again, hope everyone is doing well. Take, take care. And until next time, I'll take the points.